Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today ends our week of Season 3 Part 7 coverage by looking at my archive work on the show. After I uh, share these samples, I'm going to uh, share the opening minute of Part 8. Fair warning beforehand, when I do that, you'll, you'll have time to tune out if you haven't watched Part 8 yet. It's just the opening minute. I just describe it, kind of detail the texture of what we see. But uh, I like to do that as a teaser at the end of each week. And then, of course, tomorrow Part 8 will begin. But first, let's conclude on Part 7. For my previous work on this episode in 2017, the immediate response after the episode aired, I wrote, As suggested last week, Diane is going to be one of our most important guides into the mystery of the double. I'm not sure how I feel about where her story is headed. The doppelganger visited Diane in her home 25 years ago, and she has clearly been traumatized ever since, practically spitting her former boss's name and initially refusing to meet with him until Gordon Cole gently coaxes her aboard the mission. She can barely look at the long-haired, ominous figure through the glass, even as he's calmly defiant in his proud recollection. What happened that night? Diane promises to tell Gordon when they're alone, but given the doppelganger's proclivities, Diane's visceral reaction and bitter anger, and Twin Peaks' tendency to return to the theme of sexual violence, we can probably draw a conclusion. I hope I'm wrong. I am definitely not of the opinion that Twin Peaks' emphasis on rape and abuse is exploitative, or that the show would be better off leaving the subject behind. I think without this troubling theme, the show would feel dishonest and evasive, as it did after concluding the Laura Palmer mystery, racing off to find more manic, lightweight storylines. That said, this just doesn't feel right to me, and not simply because it's icky to think that the hidden figure Cooper cheerfully dictated his experiences to, his professional comrade and comforting touchstone, became one of his first victims. After all, the revelation that Leland abused Lara felt much the same. But this doesn't feel icky in a constructive way. In 2018, I had a conversation with Lindsay Stamhuis. Uh, I keep pronouncing her name different each time. Sorry, Lindsay. Uh, it was on parts five through eight on the website 25 years later. She asked me, in part seven, we got the reveal about the body in the bed being Major Briggs. Did you see that coming or was it a shock for you? And I said, I can't remember when I heard this idea or who was the first to point it out, but I don't think it occurred to me until several episodes in. I didn't really like it at first. In a way, it seemed almost disrespectful to bring Don Davis back as a naked, headless corpse. I don't think I wanted it to be true, but it seemed pretty unavoidable once it came up. In 2020, I uh, published a video called Your Weekly Peaks. Uh, it includes a little bit of the beginning of part eight, but... Uh, this clip only goes up to part seven. It was mostly on parts five through seven, so no spoilers in this. We have to go back to March and April of 1991 to find the last time that Twin Peaks was a weekly, hour-long drama. And you can feel this in the parts themselves. Each episode takes on a different flavor, in a fashion recalling season one with its carousel of writers and directors. Part five is a fluid tour de force of the characters' lives an eclectic, expansive survey of mid-century American archetypes, updated for the new millennium. I know. From the bustling lives of a small town to the suburban office workers' daily travails, okay, I hit the money. it presents a technicolor, quasi-50s vibe that taps into the spirit of Lynch's Sweeney years, if not quite the rhythms, more closely than probably any other hour of the series. Part 6 offers a sharp dive into gruesome violence and desperate pain, as well as fascinating peaks 
into Twin Peaks supernatural flare-ups. With even its muted palette and lopsided structure, 20 opening minutes spent on Dougie Coop and his case files, providing a pointed contrast to the previous week. My name is Annie. I've been with Dale and Laura. Part 7 may be the closest the new season comes to outright fan service, reminding us that what we left behind remains ongoing and excitingly unresolved. That was the room where Agent Cooper was shot. Reacquainting us with storylines from the past. Major Briggs should be in his 70s. There must be some mistake. I've seen the body myself. And that's it for the Part 7 coverage. Now for the opening minute of Part 8. We're going to begin with the one-minute clip, and then I will describe in great detail what we see. There are three tracking devices on this car. Get up close behind that truck. You know, I swear at me for running off. Sure, it's stupid of me to get caught up like I did. As we fade up from black to a very dark image, the first part of the frame to become visible is near the far right, a strip of grayish white with a half-obscured bright white light in the middle. As the fade up concludes, we can see that this is the view out the back window of a car, illuminated by the preceding car's headlight and framed on its left edge by the curve of the driver's seat headrest and the driver's, Raymond Rose, curly hair. The dashboard and upholstery of the car is totally lost and obscured in the blackness, and their reddish skin tones are mostly hidden in shadow. Ray wears a dark shirt, and the passenger Cooper, in the form of the doppelganger Mr. C, is clad in a jacket, open to reveal his white shirt with a slight opening at its collarless neck. The shirt is the only po other point of noteworthy contrast, besides the headlight, that's in this frame, although Ray's steering wheel is kind of a duller white, or at least a lighter shade of brown or tan. It's hard to determine exactly on this night drive. It's ridged for the ease of the knuckles holding it, and it's in the shape of a long, narrow ring, kind of an older form of steering wheel, I think, than you often get in cars now. No airbag in there, uh, rather than a bulkier, solid object. This shot continues for about 12 seconds after the fade, punctuated by two tall street lights reflected in the windshield as the car passes underneath them. Ten seconds into this minute, Cooper, staring nonchalantly out the passenger window or left side, our left of the windshield, pulls a phone from inside his jacket and holds it down, staring at it as he appears to hit a button and slide his finger down, turning on the screen. Cut to a reverse close-up of that phone screen. A deep, dark, bluish background stares back at us, only lighter than the black that surrounds it and the three black bars that cross it in horizontal form. Inside the black bars are words, letters, or shapes. The first is simply a green letter C. The second reads fire in red. And the third bar frames a smaller D, a larger white circle with a red dot in the middle, and an equally small X on the other side of the circle. 
There's a blue arrow-like triangle stemming from the right side of this middle bar, and apparently from its left as well, though Cooper's thumb obscures that side. As either the phone or the handheld camera moves, revealing the bottom of the screen, we can see a white bar at the bottom, with a search-like arrow symbol, a full arrow, line, and triangular pointer both, and then Cooper clicks on the C bar and the fire bar, both of which disappear in turn. After about four seconds, we return to the medium, head-on view that we began with, facing the driver and passenger. Cooper continues to use his phone while staring straight ahead and pointing at something initially unseen as he directs Ray. While continuing his direction, about 20 seconds into the scene now, we cut to the reverse shot out the windshield for the first time, seeing what these characters are driving towards. Aside from a distant car ahead of them on their own highway lane, there is a large cargo truck in the lane to their left. Continuing to watch from this view as Ray's vehicle shifts lanes to get behind the truck, we then reverse back to the shot looking into the car. Cooper continues to work on his phone and then looks up when the switch appears to be complete. A reverse shot reels that the truck is now much closer, to the point where Ray seems to be right up behind it and can even read the license plate. Reverse shot. Cooper glances up at the truck and down at his phone several times while typing with his thumbs, cupping the phone in both hands. We see the close-up of its screen again as Cooper types the capital letters D-E-G-W-W-8 into the white bar and then hits the arrow, which drops the keyboard out of view. And I should note that third black bar is also gone now, so he apparently eliminated all of them by clicking on them. For the final 20 seconds or so, we cut to a new shot, a side medium view, a little closer naturally than it was through the windshield. This time we're looking from the driver's side. Ray and Cooper are in profile, Ray slightly out of focus in the foreground, Cooper closer to the center of the frame, and a rear view mirror on Cooper's side near the left of the frame, revealing a couple beady distant headlights. Cooper continues to cradle his phone in one hand while hitting the button to lower his window with the other. He looks down once more at the phone and then tosses it out the window, turning his head to see it go as Ray looks slightly in his direction. Cooper then comfortably sits back, tilting his head to the side and staring straight ahead again as he rolls up his window. Ray begins speaking while staring ahead and then turns his head fully in Cooper's direction for a moment, a glance of concern perhaps. He lifts his hand twice for emphasis, perhaps a vague mea culpa gesture while semi-apologizing. Neither man looks particularly happy as our minute comes to an end. So tomorrow we begin a week of coverage on part eight, and here's a fun surprise that happens nowhere else in Lost in Twin Peaks. This is the only time that I did this. I had guests on to discuss with me. Em and Steve from the No Ship Network podcast, where they did the podcast uh, Sparkwood in 21, which was a Twin Peaks podcast in 2015. Then they continued in 2017 with the show. And we had this conversation back in 2018 when I first record all of this season three material for uh, for patrons. So uh, maybe some references there that are slightly out of date, but it's a great conversation. I look forward to sharing it, chopping it up, putting it into the form uh, that these podcasts are in, which is a little different than I originally presented them. You know, they'd be all in one. Some of the sections have been added since. So I'll be putting that together. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it will be put together because I'm finally getting ahead on these uh, podcasts, which is why they're coming out every morning at around 6 a.m. instead of at whatever point in the day that uh, I'm able to get them out there. But uh, you'll be able to hear all of that tomorrow morning, part eight. Uh, let's just say it's a big one. See you then.